we're uh, looking at uh, a series of sermons in the prophets, which were um, sort of the, the books that help prepare Israel for the coming of the Messiah. And it's also one of those uh, passages or sermons where, as a pastor, you wonder on Saturday night, am I biting off too much uh, to chew here? There's just so much going on. And just to drop into the front end of this uh, very kind of large uh, book of, of prophetic verse and have any context is uh, asking a lot. So let me just give you a little bit of background here because we are reading in verse, in chapter two, rather. Um, but chapter one sets this up where Habakkuk begins a series of questions and answers of God. You could, you could say interrogations. <clears throat> In chapter one, verse two is the famous refrain, how long, O Lord, how long, O Lord, must I call for help and you do not listen? Maybe you haven't spoken to God in that way, that directly before, but who among us hasn't asked that? Where are you, God? How long must I wait? And for some of us, it's the reason that we can't fully embrace a life of faith. How can God stand idly by when things are so very bad? Or maybe as insiders, we've asked this question. People who've ostensibly given their lives unto God's service but are still asking, where are you when I am hurting? Where are you when my life is spiraling out of control? Where are you, God, when the future for our church looks uncertain and certainly uh, not clear in terms of direction? Well, Habakkuk is asking this too, asking these questions for Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel that has spiraled into decay and idolatry. And he's noticing that there's violence, there's conflict, there's injustice, that God, no one respects you. And where are you? It's a little bit of a different take on this question that all of us have asked. God, look at your nation, your holy people, no one respects you. And where are you? Well, God surprises Habakkuk. He says, look at the nations and be utterly amazed. Those Babylonians, that impetuous and ruthless nation that is feared by everyone. Look at the nations, that is your enemies. God tells Habakkuk that he is raising up the nations, particularly Babylon to sweep across Israel and to cleanse her of her sin. <clears throat> and Habakkuk's response is sort of, what? What are you talking about, God? I know things are bad, but you can't be serious. Your eyes can't look upon evil, that is, the Babylonians. You can't tolerate them. Certainly, you can't condone those who are evil, swallowing up those who are more righteous. He's perplexed, and he's confused, and maybe has a little bit of national hubris going on. But what does he do in response to that? In the middle of his bafflement, he leans into his relationship with God. 
he leans into his knowledge of God's trustworthiness in a time of uncertainty. And he responds that he, Habakkuk, will stand at watch. He will wait on what God is doing to see the ultimate outcome of this very strange prophecy, this very strange promise that God is giving to him. Well, that's the context for our our passage. And God's answer in that what we read is an answer to a second complaint that we just referred to from Habakkuk. How could he use, not just where are you, God, don't you see your nation, but how could he use the Babylonians to bring judgment on Israel? Well, God agrees with Habakkuk's basic cultural analysis of the Babylonians, that they really are rotten people. They're engaging in unethical greedy business practices. They're despoiling the land. They're indifferent to injustice. They're warlike and violent. They're oppressing other people. They're suffering from delusions of grandeur. It's easy, isn't it? Gratifying even to hear about other very rotten people, to hear about other people's sin. And we could justifiably join Habakkuk and God in pointing fingers at the Babylonians. They were a profoundly murderous culture. But I don't know, and I don't know about you, but I haven't done any ransacking lately, not a lot of recent marauding to confess. It's hard to relate to the sin that God is putting his finger upon in the Babylonian life. So why is this here? What value is is there for us? What's the use of taking what is essentially the most sinful culture that Israel could think of and detailing their sinfulness? Well, sometimes scripture gets in through the back door. It comes in through a bit of bait and switch. Do you remember in 2 Samuel when the prophet Nathan tells the story of this terrible, rotten, no good man to King David, who he, of course, condemns, only to find out that he's condemning himself. Well, maybe there's something similar going on here. See the enemy, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright and he's never at rest because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied. And then in verse 16, which we didn't read, basically the assessment of Babylon and all of its oppression and all of its greed and all of its unethical behavior is an attempt to cover shame with glory. In other words, the manifestations of Babylonian, of Babylon's sin is violence, it's oppression, it's martial power, and we are very correct to condemn their behavior. But at the center of their story as a nation is a, is a cultural pride. It's a, a cultural hubris masking what is a deep insecurity. 
their delusions of grandeur, in other words, are little more than the attempt to mask shame with glory. The attempt to cover over insecurity with national exploits. Don't we as Americans understand this sort of national insecurity that can't abide criticism? How dare you criticize the United States? Don't we understand this sort of insecurity, national insecurity that masks shame with glory, that uses national mythology to cover over all sorts of collective malfeasance? Don't we understand what it's like personally to never be at rest, to never be fully satiated and fully satisfied? Don't we understand personally what it's like to always be seeking, always be thirsting, always be in pursuit of something that we can't even really describe to cover up something that we just vaguely feel? Michael Mann is one of my favorite film directors, and he makes brilliant philosophical movies basically about men at work, about how their vocational genius, their commitment to craft also creates tensions in everyday life. And their glory and their pursuit ends up basically crushing them personally. In 1995, he made the critically acclaimed cop drama Heat. And Al Pacino plays the detective trying to put away Robert De Niro and his crew of thieves. He leads this group of very high-end, very professional thieves. Well, Pacino, the detective that's trying to stop them, he's on his third failing marriage. His daughter doesn't know him and barely tolerates him. He drives his detectives to the limit. He puts chasing down criminals above everything. And it's why he's such a, an interesting character. Well, sort of midway through the film, his third wife, his wife finally confronts him. And in one of those deeply honest moments, he defends his behavior by saying, all I am is what I'm going after. All I am is what I'm going after. There's all of this pursuit. There's all of this drivenness. There's all of this achievement. There's all of this seeking after glory, all to cover up an emptiness at the center of life. He's never at rest. He's always in pursuit. He never can gain enough glory to compensate for his inner restlessness. It makes him a, a fantastic cop, but a poor human. Vocationally brilliant, but he sacrifices his life on the altar of more. What the Bible does, what Habakkuk does, is to give us religious language for this sort of very human predicament. That fundamentally, what's going on in his life and in all of our lives, if we stop to take a look, all of the brokenness, all of the delusions of grandeur is an issue of misplaced worship or what the Bible would call idolatry. 
of what value is an idol that someone has carved or an image that teaches lies. For those who make them trust in their own creations, they make idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? For it too is covered with gold and silver, and there's no breath in it. While the Babylonians conquered and killed other people, we may kill ourselves with overwork. We may kill our relationships by forcing them to meet our needs, by trying to extract meaning and value and love from a relationship that simply can't bear the weight of our demands upon it. We may kill our health by hiding in addiction. Our idolatry probably isn't a wooden totem or a bronze serpent, but it's no less insidious. Ours may be more sophisticated and subtle, but just as destructive. Maybe we worship being perfect parents or pleasing our parents, maybe raising faultless children or trying to be faultless children. Maybe our idolatry is making good grades, making the big deals, getting the right friends or getting into the right school. God says that these things are images that speak lies. They are lifeless stones. These lies, these stones are things that we make deals with. We negotiate with them and they keep us sane just a little more. We want transcendence, we want glory, but we prostrate ourselves instead to things that are wholly finite. Listen what Marilyn Robinson has to say about the Old Testament, but also about religion in general. The first obligation of religion is to maintain the sense of the value of human beings. If you had to summarize the Old Testament, the summary would be, stop doing this to yourselves. But it is not in our nature to stop harming ourselves. We don't behave consistently with our own dignity or with the dignity of other people. The Bible reiterates this endlessly. When God gives us stories like this, that is what we are reading about in Habakkuk, when he talks about the law, when he talks about the holiness of his people, when he calls for devotion and worship, it's not simply because he wants or even deserves our allegiance, though he certainly does, but it's because he wants to spare us the agony of life on our own, of constantly negotiating with things that can't fill us, of giving up little parts of ourselves over time to things that don't bring life, that don't bring rest until we look up one morning at the end of our lives and realize that we've invested decades in a dead-end path, that our labor 
in verse 13 is only fuel for the fire that the nations exhaust themselves over for nothing. So what do we do? Just to end quickly here, what's the alternative? In verse 4, Habakkuk says on behalf of God toward the Babylonians, see, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by their faithfulness. In the early 1500s, Martin Luther was a Catholic monk. He was plagued by guilt and a lack of certainty that God really loved him. He had disappointed his father greatly by leaving the law profession and becoming a monk. And he saw God's approval too as hanging in the balance. And he came across this verse, or at least a part of this verse, that the Apostle Paul quotes in Romans. The just shall live by faith. And Luther says that he was set free by this realization. It's a bit of a different wording that we find in Habakkuk than in Romans. Paul is quoting the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But faithfulness in the Old Testament, it doesn't mean moral standing, moral steadfastness. It doesn't mean the proper performance of one's duty. It means relational trust and dependence. It's a relational faithfulness to another person. In this case, faithfulness to God. It is dependence upon God. It means placing one's whole life in God's hands and trusting him. It is life, in other words, by God's power rather than by our own. The Babylonians were puffed up or lifted up by themselves, by their own strength. But the righteous, you see, aren't those with the best moral behavior, but it's those who see God as the source of life. What Martin Luther saw in Romans is rooted here in Habakkuk, that life isn't given as a reward of what we are or for anything that we possess or do. Rather, life is granted to faith, to those who rely upon God alone, who gives life through his son, Jesus. These live by their faithfulness. This little phrase doesn't describe the manner. It describes, however, sorry, the manner of trust, not the means of becoming righteous. It's, in other words, a result, not a route. We attempt to cover our shame with glory, with achieving more. But Jesus comes instead in glory, only to give it up in order to cover our shame. Would you let him cover yours this morning? Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would make us more and more aware of the work of Jesus on our behalf, that we would live a life of faithfulness, that is trusting in the provision of grace that is found in his cross and in his resurrection. And I pray that we would live as people who believe that and therefore can live into uncertainty, can live into trial, can live into difficulty, while at the same time trusting you and trusting your goodness 
and trusting in finality that our faithfulness flows only from yours. We pray in the name of your son, Jesus, the faithful one. Amen.